Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories of the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. We've had a lot of new listeners to the podcast in the past couple of weeks, so if you're just discovering the bunker, don't forget to follow us on your favourite app. And if you want to help us keep going and expanding, you can support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes for early episodes, merchandise and more. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is Chief Exec of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Good morning, Justin. Good morning. So starting with the big story from over the weekend, the fallout continues around the Metropolitan Police following the forced resignation of Dame Cressida Dick last Thursday over Mayor Sadiq Khan's lack of confidence in her. Writing in The Observer yesterday, Khan said that public confidence in the force had been shattered under Dick's leadership. Just how bad are things right now for the Met on that front? Are we back to 1980s levels? It's bad. It's really bad. I was sort of running through um, some of the things that Cressida Dick has had to apologise for just in the last 12 months. And they include things like, you know, the failure to stop Wayne Cousins before he raped and murdered Sarah Everard, of course. Obviously, the infamous story of the police officers photographing the bodies of two murdered sisters and then sharing those images on WhatsApp, the finding by an independent panel that the force was institutionally corrupt, blunders that enabled the serial killer Stephen Port to keep targeting young gay men. And that's before the criticism that the Met has come under for refusing to investigate the potential lockdown breaches at Downing Street, before um, the findings, that uh, it was handed findings by Sue Gray's investigation. So it isn't just incompetence in terms of policing, it's, there are still allegations of institutionalized corruption, racism, homophobia, misogyny throughout the force. And so it's been bad for a long time. And whether we're back to 1980s or whether it's even worse, I don't know. But we all we can definitively say is it's bad and it is causing big problems between the Home Office and City Hall as well. To that relationship, so the appointment of the new police chief rests fully with the Home Secretary, but she is supposed to take the mayor's preference into account when making that appointment. Khan has said explicitly that he will oppose the appointment of a new Met chief unless they have what he's termed a robust plan to deal with the force's cultural problems. Is this likely to become a new flashpoint in the culture war between the government and anyone who isn't the government? Well, it's certainly going to become a flashpoint of the war between Labour and the Conservatives. There are all up London elections across the boroughs this um, May. So uh, Labour will obviously be looking to defend and extend their councillor base across the 32 boroughs. So, you know, there is that backdrop to this, this political backdrop, and the Conservatives desperately not wanting to have an appalling set of local elections given antipathy towards the Prime Minister at the moment and the the party generally. It's fascinating because obviously uh, Khan's uh, rationale for for Dick's resignation were around, or, you know, sacking, was around him not having confidence in her plan. So, of course, it's right that he would then say, well, the next person's got to have a better plan because hers was not good enough to, to, you know, root out all of the ills within the force at the moment. But... Patel allegedly over the weekend has apparently been looking at all options to bar uh, Sadiq Khan from having any say in appointing the new Met Commissioner. She's got her own preferred candidate, but we don't know if that candidate is even going to put themselves forward. Interestingly, the rumour mill I'd heard was that Patel wasn't a big fan of, of Cressida Dick and actually did want to get rid of her 
quite a while ago, but Johnson liked her and Johnson defended her. And obviously Patel is nothing if not a Johnson fangirl. So uh, was, was, was allegedly doing her boss's bidding on that. So she sort of had, you know, two different men in her life dictate who the vet commissioner should be to her. So I'm sure she will be looking to exert as much influence over it as possible. And technically it is, it is her appointment to make. I mean, recently she seems to have been strangely absent generally from sort of politics. I mean, with Khan has certainly made all the running on the uh, the Crested Dick story. Is she being sidelined in some way at the moment? Well, she is, of course, heading up two of the most egregious bills going through Parliament at the moment, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. I think I've got that full name correct, but we always just call it the Policing Bill for short. And of course, the Nationality and Borders Bill. So in terms of her pernicious impact on the statute books of our land, she is ever present and doing a hell of a lot of work to get those through unamended. And of course, she faced a series of defeats in the Lords when the policing bill was there a couple of weeks ago. That's going to be going back to the Commons shortly. So she is doing a lot of politics. It's probably just not getting the media prominence given all of the other stories that we've been discussing around Partygate, Ukraine, etc. Um, and to that point, I mean, you mentioned that the rumour mill was that Patel had, uh, you know, her own preference at the moment. Are we getting any names in the frame already for the uh, for the job? So um, her preferred candidate is allegedly um, the former National Crime Agency boss, Lynn Owens, uh, but it's not yet clear as to whether she will put her name forward. Um, lots of other names have been sort of thrown into the mix, not ones that I particularly have any view on or have, have heard of previously because it's not really my world but there's um a, a chap called Mark Rowley who was a former assistant commissioner for specialist operations there's a former Merseyside police chief Andy Cook he have, obviously doesn't have met experience but having an outsider could have benefits and he does have some fans within government there's a former Devon um, and Cornwall police chief in the mix as well an Essex police chief so there's, there's probably about half a dozen names that are being sort of thrown around and, and one of them may be, uh, may be brought forward or they may go for somebody, you know, completely left field. I don't know. I thought it was notable over the weekend that a fair amount of both police and legal Twitter was more supportive of Dick, uh, pointing out four of the last five commissioners are now to resign and are suggesting that it might just be an impossible job in its current form. Um, if you had to make the call one way or another – do you think they will grasp the opportunity and see that this is a chance for restructuring and maybe break the organisation up, or are we more likely to just see more of the same? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to have your hope and optimism that we might be about to <laughs> see that you know, police we could all be proud of. I think. I think it is worth remembering. Was it Peel that said the police are the public and the public are the police? You know, we've got to. We've got to hope and pray that, you know, we can turn this around and, and have a force that, um, you know, we can all be proud of. But these things take years. You know, cultures don't change overnight. I've, you know, had to turn around a culture within an organisation and you can do some elements of it quickly, but others takes a really long time, especially in a highly unionised workforce. A lot of the the policing and legal Twitter that you referred to over the weekend focused on recruitment and recruitment processes and practices. And, you know, for far too long, the values that the Met says it wants to embody 
aren't actually tested within the recruitment process and that recruits get far more points, if you like, for their technical ability with firearms than uh, they do at all for any kind of assessment of their character and in terms of their value system and, and, and their beliefs. So, you know, even if you were to implement a new recruitment process immediately, that is for new recruits. And what are you going to do with the, you know, thousands of, of staff that you've already got in your staff body that that would have to you know be managed out if they didn't meet those uh, value criteria moving away from london to the international scene and obviously the big story still this week is ukraine now this is obviously very much a moving story at this precise minute but as of 8am monday morning do we have any idea how likely it's looking that russia will move to cross the ukrainian border this week uh, no, <laughs> I mean I don't have any any extra specialist intel that um, the Americans and and Brussels and London don't have. I hate to break it to bunker listeners, um, but it's uh, received wisdom over the weekend from some really quite astonishing levels of uh, intelligence released by Washington. They believe Putin intends to invade on either Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And it's been quite telling how open security intelligence, well, you know, governments have been in releasing their security intelligence. They're, it's it's presumably part of the the you know diplomatic effort to get Putin to row back. And reports are that Moscow is quite disturbed by the levels of intelligence that it's hearing. And so I guess all of that does a few things. Hopefully, it, it extends the period by which Putin is not invading, giving longer for other diplomatic relations to happen, that it might cause some, you know, concern within Putin's cabal about how this intelligence is is being gotten hold of, etc. So look, I don't know if it's going to happen this week or not. Someone's going to have egg on their face within the next couple of weeks as to whether they called it completely incorrectly one way or another. Most uh, Western countries are still advising staff to and, and, and citizens to leave Kiev and, and other parts of Ukraine as a matter of urgency. So, uh, yeah, un, unclear at this stage, but um, certainly the briefings over the weekend was that we should expect an invasion this week. And as one of our resident Europe watchers, how do you gauge the EU's response to Russia so far? Is Macron's freelancing diplomacy a sign of a divided continent, or do you think it's more showing the bloc's flexibility and strength in depth? So on all of this, I think a couple of things. I think that Putin 100% is cashing in on a divided West. After years of Trump and Brexit, he knows that the West is is divided and isn't the united power that it once was. So for sure he is he is taking advantage of that at the moment and there can be no you know denying that britain not having a place at the table in brussels is an impact that's being felt right now but a lot of what i've heard over the last few weeks has really focused on this nato argument and other commentators on the bunker will probably know far better than me and tell me that I'm completely wrong on all of this. But for me, the NATO argument does feel a bit like a red herring that really flatters Russia's argument. I mean, Ukraine wants to align westwards 
not eastwards. It has already been invaded. You know, we saw that with annexation of Crimea in 2014. And that happened after the pro-Russian government was replaced by a pro-European government in Kiev. And so this is a war within a war. The invasion may not happen this week, but let's be clear, if you're a resident of somewhere like Mariupol on the border with Russia, you've been living in a warlike atmosphere for eight years now. And you know, in 2014, off the back of that UK, Ukrainian revolution, there was unrest in the southeast Donbass region, and that's where Putin went in and sponsored the Russian separatists and fr- flooded the area with finances and military contractors. And so for the West and for the EU in particular, we've got to make a decision about are we wanting to uphold democracy or imperialism? And so I just think feeding into the NATO arguments that is Putin's argument is to devalue the fact that this Ukraine is a sovereign nation with a, you know, democratically elected government and like all democracies flawed. And who are we to comment on the flaws of another democracy in the situation we're in at the moment? But, you know, this is a democratic struggle. And so I, I, I wish I was hearing more of those arguments coming from the West. And I think that could help unite them. There was a long thread by the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, yesterday on Twitter, which uh, listeners may have seen, which drew the line very clearly between our inability to contain Putin and our own system's tolerance of corruption with regard to foreign money. He wrote that until we publish the assets of officials whose salaries don't match their lifestyles and clean up our own city, they won't take us seriously and will be kept simmering. It was fairly unvarnished, I mean, especially coming from someone on his side of politics. Uh, What kind of moves would actually make a difference here in terms of cleaning up our domestic operations? I mean, good question. And actually, uh, the UK is coming under real pressure from Washington to to close all of its kind of money laundering loopholes and things like that, which exist. Mm. Um, We could probably do an entire show on those um, and and get a a city uh, analyst in who can speak much more fluently about it. But yes, London has been a home for Russian money for you know decades now. Um, we've seen it within our own politics, you know, allegations of Russian money working its way into our own elections and and democratic processes. So yes, we absolutely need to get on this. And I'm told that actually it could be um, as early as this week that government makes moves to close some of those legal loopholes in terms of. Um, as, as I understand it, there are there are things like you know the banks having to check the original source of funds and things like that in in a way that you know it, it is easier to get around at the moment than it should be. Speaking of senior Tory figures with a taste for Russian money, uh, Partygate rumbles on around Boris Johnson this week. Uh, (laughs) The PM is expected to reply to questions emailed to him by the Met this week. How do you assess the likelihood of him answering them truthfully and clearly and in a way that neatly wraps up the whole story? (laughs) Do I even have to answer this question? (laughs) Just just a probability. uh, I think there's about a one in a hundred chance of that. that. that's higher than I was expecting on the over-under. <laughs> he'll use flowery language. He'll pepper it with Greek and Latin, blah, 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 you know, bluster, 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 dodging, dodging, answering the question entirely for sure. I mean, I'm also just picturing this uh, sort of crumpled 
sheet of paper coming back to the Met with sort of fag burns and red wine stains on it and sort of crumpled. I, I also just like think of it as like a questionnaire. So what's it going to say? To what extent do you think you had a bunch of some extent? Unsure. <laughs> no, one to ten, just grading exactly. that way. And, I mean, the calculation has clearly been made by Johnson that he can brazen this out longer than the public can stay angry. As someone who monitors public opinion a great deal at best for Britain. Um, Is that a effective calculation you think he's making there? Is the story starting to run out of steam? No, I don't think so. And I think there will be more photographs and, you know, that there may even include some new figures as well that will be damaging, you know, figures close to the Prime Minister and his wife. So uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to go away. Um, I'm sort of you know, on on one hand, heartened that he is digging in. I didn't think he'd dig in this long. I mean, it is quite extraordinary mm. <laughs> um, to have not resigned yet. It probably is is pretty helpful to opposition parties that he hasn't. Mm. Um, I think the longer the longer he stays there, like a toxic turd that won't flush, stinking out the whole bathroom for the Conservatives, um, the better, frankly. But uh, look, no, I don't think it's going away. I just think that the the party is in a mess. They can't coalesce around a, a replacement figure there are you know factions within factions going on and so yeah I think at this stage we're probably all eyes on the Met Police conclusion to their investigation and then the local elections in May. Parliament is on recess this week which will presumably be a relief for Johnson to miss PMQs after a series of fairly bruising encounters with Keir Starmer this week. Uh, it also gives him the chance to bed in the new arrivals that we've been seeing settling in at number 10. Steve Barclay, the new Chief of Staff, was out over the weekend saying that high spending needs to end and the state will be scaled back to its pre-COVID levels while Gito Harry obviously got off to a flying start <laughs> number 10 Director of Communications for rounding rendition of I Will Provide Um, Is this team going to be the upgrade and sea change that the country desperately needs? And is it going to be possible to reform the government in any way? It it, it was never about what the country needed. It was just (laughs) about what Johnson needed to get through the 1922. Mm. Um, How many people that are acceptable to them can I put around me to fend them off or get them to withdraw some of their letters if it's getting close to the 54? A, it it was absolutely not about what the country needs. The number of MP appointments is staggering. Gitto Harry is an arch remainer who's been very critical um, of Johnson um, in interviews before and since his appointment. Mm. So uh, I don't think it is it is going to be the, the turnaround team that's needed. But as I said, when we were talking about the police, the fish rots from the head. Uh, it doesn't matter who he puts in. He's there mm. and he's a terrible leader. Both uh, Sunak and Liz Truss have been very obviously on manoeuvres recently in terms of angling for the top job. Um, There was a general sense that Truss came off pretty badly from her diplomatic trip to Russia and her talks with Sergei Lavrov last week. Has that set her leadership ambitions back, do you think? So her leadership ambitions are held back by the public who don't like her. The Tory party faithful adore her. Uh, So the MPs that don't back her are desperate for her not to get on the member ballot because she will do very, very well with them by comparison to the other front runners, it would seem. Um, But they know from, you know, polling how unpopular she is with the country at large. So the, the thing that sort of holds her back is anything that makes her look even less attractive to the the public. And she has been doing such a photograph, 
you know, charm offensive. I mean, this is her, her shtick. And um, there's been some hilarious comparisons of her copying Margaret Thatcher poses, you know, even the direction of where her eyes are and the kind of hat she's wearing and, and everything. And the kind of, so, kind of tank um, she's driving. Indeed, exactly. <laughs> so I I don't think uh, it will have helped her, but um, she's still very much the darling of the party faithful. This week sees large parts of Europe entering something like the COVID endgame, for now at least. Uh, COVID passes are being abandoned with limits on crowd numbers being raised in the Czech Republic. Denmark has abandoned pretty much all of its restrictions with Norway and Sweden following suit. France and Italy are phasing out face masks. Um, Is this a positive sign of normality returning or just a collective recognition that societies have basically reached the limits of their tolerance for this kind of thing? So as a society, we have uh, largely abandoned public health measures, but as individuals, we can still act. And I think that's like the overarching message that that responsible people should be pushing out. When you look at history and the, the 1918 flu pandemic that killed, you know, upwards of 50 million people worldwide, um, it, it, the received wisdom is that it ended in the summer of 1919 when a third wave um, of what was also a respiratory contagion um, subsided. But actually, that's not true. It's just how history wrote it up. The virus continued to kill. Um, and a new variant that emerged in 1920 was lethal enough um, that it should have counted as a fourth wave. Mm. Um, and death succeeded even those in the second wave. Despite the fact that the the US population had plenty of natural immunity from the virus two years after infections, but people had been you know through a lot they'd 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 you know had many measures in place for a couple of years and while um the third you know when the third wave struck, virtually no city in the US responded. Now what's true is that we do have every reason for optimism with omicron. Cases are declining in parts of the country. We've got high levels of, of of people that have either been infected or are vaccinated. So, you know, that should continue to keep helping us. Um, and Omicron is good at infecting the upper respiratory tract. So although that makes it very transmissible, it seems less able to infect the lungs than mm. earlier variants. But... I think these sort of signs of weariness are actually, you know, kind of a misguided hope. Um, we know that um, the, the virus probably isn't going to be finished with us. And although future variants might be less dangerous, mutations are random. Mm. Uh, and the only thing certain is that there will be future variants. And if they're to be successful, they will you know, elude immune protection and could become more dangerous. So yes, we're, we're returning to normal in terms of not having to do all of the things that that we've been asked to do, like staying home and wearing masks and testing and isolating and tracing contacts and all of the rest of it, but that doesn't mean that we're free of this virus um, and that we're we're certainly certainly not out of the woods. So, yeah, governments may be rowing back, but individuals can still act. Johnson is expected to announce a similar scaling back of restrictions for here at the end of the month. Um, he'll obviously be hoping for a bounce in popularity as he heralds the return of normal life. Being Mister Good Times is very much in his wheelhouse. Uh, do you think he'll be in luck, and the public will sort of gratefully reward him for that? 
Well, I mean, I think the public have been much more sceptical of the virus than he has been right since the start. And poll after poll after poll has shown that the British public has got far more of an appetite for faster, stronger, stricter measures um, than the COVID resurgence group of backbench Conservative MPs. So I think any any popularity he's hoping to gain will be from the right flank of his parliamentary party. Um, and I, I can't imagine there's going to be much from the public other than, you know, uh, very marginally at the right fringes who may say, OK, oh, I don't need to back Richard Tice anymore because Johnson is a good enough impression of him. And finally, just a tough question to end on. Hospital numbers have stayed lower over the past few months than many of us were fearing and lower than case numbers might have converted to given the numbers of infections. So much as it pains me to ask this, do we have to say that Johnson actually called this one correctly and the relatively light touch gamble paid off? No, um, I live with somebody that's got long COVID. Uh, It is a horrific, horrific condition. Reports over the weekend from New Zealand where one of the um, Professor there is a probably the global leader on uh, researching long COVID has said that they're now beginning to see long COVID emerging in people who are triple vaxxed who got Omicron. So we don't know yet. It is too early. J- just because people haven't been hospitalised and haven't uh, died in the numbers that it was feared that mutation could have caused, we have not uh, seen what this is going to do long term for those that that you know, have been infected and are still suffering the complications of that. Some people may be suffering complications they don't know about. You know, this was called novel coronavirus 19 or whatever when it first came out. It is new. We don't know enough about it yet. It was a really, really massive gamble and that it's far too early to say whether or not that gamble's paid off or not, given the incredibly large number of infections we've got in the UK and the potential problems that could cause, and the fact that we have spectacularly failed to live up to our commitments to export sufficient vaccines around the world to help vaccinate people in lower-income countries, those exact countries where a new mutation that is more virulent could come back to bite us on the bottom. So uh, I'm afraid you're not going to get any uh, 10 out of 10 points for Johnson from me. You surprise me, Naomi. Anyway, <laughs> that is Start Your Week. Naomi, thank you so much for getting up early today. Thanks, Justin. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Don't forget, you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon, and we'll be really grateful, and it would make a big difference. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow for the panel show. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.